Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Hi, this is David Sachs and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, today's a big day. Today's the 17th day of Tammuz, which is, um, it's supposed to be a great holiday. And the, in, in its core, it, it will be a great holiday. In fact, the, the, the prophet Zacharias says that it's going to be a big holiday, as well as Tisha B'Av and the 10th of Tevis and and all the other fast days um, are all destined to be big holidays. And we know actually um, that that this day is actually alluded to as a holiday, believe it or not, in the in the Torah itself. Um, I say believe it or not, because the, the reason why this, this day, for the most part, uh, is a fast day is because of later historical events, things that happen hundreds or, you know, more years a- after the Torah was already written. So... So it's it's intriguing that that this day actually appears in the Torah. So so where does it appear? Where 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 do we first see it? And the answer is is that Moshe is supposed to come down from Mount Sinai with the with the tablets, with the luchos, with the Torah on them, and um, and he's delayed, and and people think that he's dead. In fact, it says in the Gemara that Hashem tested the Jewish people by showing us. Moshe in a coffin, so so that's a, that's a whole uh, that's a whole topic in itself. But 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 we were tested to see is is Moshe coming back or or do we feel as though we need any in between in terms of our relationship with God? That's that was the nature of the test, and um, the people panicked. They thought Moshe is not coming down. Moshe is dead. You know, we had just seen this this vision that we had been tested with, and so the people wanted to make the golden calf. Now, Aaron, the high priest, Moshe's brother, um, Aaron tells the people as a, the way it's usually read and understood as a delay tactic. He says, he says, wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a holiday. And, and the idea was Aaron was trying to buy time, so to speak, for Moshe to come because Aaron, you know, understood that Moshe was still alive. In fact, um, uh, Rav Frumer, the, the Eretz Fee, says that this is one of the great spiritual sort of like uh, attributes of someone who's a Levi, someone from the tribe of Levi, is that they feel the, 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 the connection to, to God, say, and, and, to, and to other things where, where other people don't necessarily and so, in other words, um, the tribe of Levi didn't participate in the in the sin of the golden calf. Why? Because even though we didn't see Moshe, we felt this connection that he was still there. Isn't that interesting? And and he actually goes through. He he shows that in in an amazing instance how in halacha how you how you see something very similar. I'll tell you this is gonna. Take us to a different place, but but again, what's the, what, what's the topic? What are we what are, what are we looking for here? How this tri- how the tribe of Levi 
feels this sense of connection. And 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 again, just to review, Aaron knew that Moshe was still alive because he sensed it, as did the whole tribe of Levi. They we sensed it. Therefore we didn't fall into this sin of the golden calf. Now before we get to this other halachic topic, let me just finish the point here about the seventeenth of Tammuz. Is that Aaron said, wait till tomorrow, because again it was a delay tactic. Um, now, tomorrow was going to be, that date on the calendar was the 17th day of Tammuz. And and Aaron says, tomorrow will be a great holiday. So, so on the surface, it looks like he's just buying time for Moshe. But on a deeper level, the Kabbalists say that, no, 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 there was going to be a brand new holiday on the Jewish calendar, which was going to celebrate the finishing off of the giving of the Torah, meaning to say that once Moshe came down from the mountain with the tablets themselves, that would have been the completion of the process of giving the Torah to the Jewish people. And that would have been a holiday in and of itself. So so in the future, it will be. In the future, it will be. And that's what the prophet Zechariah has prophesied. So, but interestingly, it turns into a day of tragedy it turns into the day today that the golden calf was worshipped and that Moshe Rabbeinu broke the tablets. Okay, so so that's that's kind of like a, a 360 around the day of, of the 17th of Tammuz, which again is today. In other words, on the, the outside of it, we've got all these sort of like tragic events surrounding it. But, but the core of it is really celebrating the completion of the receiving of the Torah, and, and, and that day will be celebrated soon, God willing. So, so, so that's just an overview. Now, historically, uh, this day also commemorates, um, and this is the main reason for the fast, by the way, the breaching of the walls of Yerushalayim. So that's kind of like a fancy phrase, breaching of the walls. What does that mean? That means that the that the the enemy, uh, the Romans, surrounded, or maybe it was also the Babylonians, since since the uh, since the base of Migdash was destroyed, both of them were destroyed on the ninth day of Av. But whatever it is, the the attackers surrounded the walls of Yerushalayim. And they started to knock down the walls. That's breaching the walls, okay? So, so it's the beginning of the end, and it's the beginning of the, the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, which is, again, another day that's going to be a great holiday, but, but, but not yet. Now, look how the Imre Noam, the, the Jikover Rebbe, uh, understands what it means for the walls of Jerusalem to start to fall. He says that that instead of looking at it as sort of like the attacker is getting closer, the walls are falling, the, you know, uh, look at it the other way. Look at it from the point of view, looking out of the base of Migdash, the holy temple, looking out for the rest, looking out at the rest of the world. When the walls fall, what does that mean? So, according to the Imre Noam, the light of Jerusalem can now spread even further out into the world. Do, do you see a completely different understanding? And, and, and that's very much supported by, um, I'm just sort of adding to his words, but I'm sure he had this in mind. You know, there was something very special about the windows inside the Holy Temple themselves. Now, 
If you make windows in a building, that's in order to maximize the amount of light that can come in from the outside and into the building itself, because you want to light up the building. Okay, that's that's obvious. That's clear. But the windows in the base of Migdash were, were constructed in a very special way. Um, when you were inside the building of the base of Migdash, of the Holy Temple, the openings of the window were actually very narrow. And then on the outside of the building, those narrow windows became very, very wide on the outside of the building. And the reason for that sort of oddity was because the base of Migdash didn't need light. The base of Migdash was the source of light. And therefore, through the narrow windows, the light would go out in this wide way on the outside and bring light to the entire creation. So again, when the walls fall of Jerusalem, now the light of Jerusalem can spread to the entire world. You see, it's, it's the same thought. It's the same dynamic. And with that in mind, I want to tell you something that I heard from Rabbi Green one time that it just stayed in my mind. It was, it was such a radical uh, idea. Um, and, and I just thought it was really intriguing. So listen to this. Now, Rabbi Green is a Rosh Hashiva, so he's obviously someone who values every aspect of the Torah and, um, and its holiness. So, so with that in mind, he said, now he had, just to give you a little background here, he was the Rosh Hashiva of, of Birkas Torah, which was in the old city of Jerusalem. Now, anyone who's visited Jerusalem, um, especially the old city, knows that the outside is surrounded by walls, right? We're, we're talking about walls today. Um, the outside is surrounded by, by these walls. Now, Rabbi Green said, if he was mayor of Jerusalem, you ready for this? If he was mayor of Jerusalem, he would knock down all of those walls. Isn't that interesting? Now, now, just a historical note here, so you understand that this radical thought isn't heretical, <laughs> that, that the walls that he's talking about on the surrounding the outside of the old city. We're not talking about the Kotel. That was actually an outer wall um, surrounding the, the base of Migdash, right? So that has a tremendous holiness to it. So he's not talking about those walls. He's talking about the, the walls much further out surrounding just the old city itself. Those walls were built by the, the Ottomans, okay? That was when the Ottoman Empire controlled uh uh, Jerusalem and, you know, was like a major player in international politics. So those are hundreds of years old, but they don't, they don't have a sanctity to them. Um, and, and here was, here was Rabbi Green's uh, thinking. He, he said that, you know, from a tourist standpoint, those old walls surrounding the, uh, the, the old city are wonderful. They're wonderful to look at. They're, they're so intriguing. You know, they're, you can climb up the steps and look through the little narrow slits that they used to fire arrows out of, you know, to defend the, the city. You know, it's, it's very, very wonderful to look at. However, it sends a message. And that message is actually a negative message in his opinion. And if you, if you listen, you, you'll see the logic of this because it's a very intriguing idea. Because they're so old walls, such old walls, so ancient looking, 
it sends the message that everything going inside the old city of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, including the Kotel, including where the Beis HaMikdash was and will be again, that that all of that which is contained within these old walls is old. And old, especially in, in, in our mind, usually means outdated and irrelevant. So can you imagine the impression it would make if you knocked down all those walls surrounding Jerusalem? <laughs> and the light is like now spreading out to the whole world because it's new and it's ever-present? Let me make the point even stronger. Rabbi Wolfson says, you know, we, we have this phrase in the, in the davening, or chadash. Or chadash means a new light. So Rabbi Wolfson says that don't translate it as a new light. It's a light of newness. See, the Torah is a light of newness. The Torah is ever fresh, is ever new, is ever relevant. And so again, that's, that, that's what we want to tap into. And, and, and that's the reality of the world. You know, there's a, a, a grammatical construct which makes this point um, in the Torah, which I think is very intriguing. And, and I, I, I feel like people who study Hebrew, you know, you just learn it as one of a uh, hundred grammatical points, but there is such an awesome, uh, just theological point here. You know what I mean? Just about just just the eternality of the Torah, the, the, the ever-freshness of the Torah. And it, it's sort of concealed in this little grammatical oddity that only exists in Hebrew. Okay, you ready for this? And in Torah Hebrew. It's called the reversing vav. All right? And it's all over the Torah. It's all over the... It's, it's everywhere. It's like, you know, like... Every other verse or more has a reversing vav in it, okay? So so this isn't just a sort of like, oh, there's one passage here where you've got this. No, no, no. This is all over the Torah. What is the reversing vav? It's when there's a verb in Hebrew, if you put a vav in front of it, it turns the past tense into the future tense and the future tense into the past tense. It is the only language that has this grammatical rule. Isn't that interesting? Very, very unusual. Very unusual. So what's the point? The point is, is that God created a grammatical construct to show you that the Torah is ever present. The past is the present, the past is the future and the future is the past. It's showing you there is no past tense. Because even if it's referring to events that happened thousands of years ago, it's irrelevant and it's going on right now. As Rabbi Wilson said in another place, which was just, just I love the poetry of it. My mind always goes back to it, is that, you know, whatever is going on in the Torah is going on in the world. That The weekly portion of the Torah, that's what's going on in the world. But listen to Rabbi Wolfson's words. He says that God takes the letters of the weekly Parsha 
and he weaves them together into the, in terms of the fabric of reality. So how can you do that? How can you do that? Because the letters of the Torah are ever present tense, right? The, the, the past is the future. The future is the past. It's all, it's all always relevant, right? So that's the idea of the, the walls being knocked down, right? The light is coming out. Or Chadash, it's not just a new light. It's a light of newness. So, so I, I knew this guy, and and there there's this this shul that I used to go to quite a bit. And in order to to get to it, I had to pass by this guy's house. And this guy was just a, this very highly eccentric guy who was always sort of working on his car in his like little narrow driveway. And it was this kind of rusted over car that he worked on for years, right? And whenever I'd sort of walk by, he'd always go, hey, come over here, come over here. So, and he'd share some, some idea with me. And, and one time he told me the following. He, he said, he asked me a question. He said, he said, how long do you live? Right? So, you know, the standard answer you could say, what does it say in the Psalms, you know, 70 years or with strength, 80 years, right? So that's a typical lifespan. Hopefully we'll all live longer and in good health. Um, but, uh, but, but that would be the standard answer. So he said to me, you know how long you live? He said, one moment. <laughs> that's all your lifespan is, one moment. And uh, what do you mean by that? Did he mean that life just passes by as if it's a moment? That's, that's actually not what he meant. He said that, that the, the present is all you have. And the present only lasts a moment. Because then it's the past. Then you don't have it anymore. And the future isn't here yet. So you don't have the future. So all you have in terms of your life is the present moment, and that just lasts a moment. So, and now we're also saying that we don't want just a new light. We want a light of newness. That means everything is new, moment to moment. And you live moment to moment. So your lifespan is perfectly, perfectly measured to live the life that you're living, which is that moment and the newness of that moment. And let's take it one step further. Each moment is absolutely unique in history. This moment right now that we're together right now will never happen again. It's never happened before, and it will never happen again. If you're ever feeling lazy, if you're ever feeling tired or uninspired, just think of what we're talking about right now. That this moment, as you're sort of just lying on your couch or sitting in your chair and just, just you don't have any energy for anything. Remember, this moment never came before in all of history and it's never coming again. Right? 
I, I have done that. I've done that more than once. And you know what I usually do? I usually stand up. Because <laughs> it's like, holy cow, how can I do that to this moment, this poor moment? It's been waiting forever to come into the world. And I'm, I'm like, ah. Okay, so, so, you know, it makes it a little bit easier when you think of life this way, I think, in my opinion. You know, the the, the, the Rebbe gives such a beautiful bit of imagery. I always go back to this. Um, you know, if you take a giant log, imagine a, a log that's like, you know, you know, the width of a tree, like a, a big log. Now, he asks the question, can you light that entire log on fire? Like, let's say you want to make a fire in a fireplace or something like this. Can you light that log with one match? And I promise you, you can't. A match, you've got, you've got like about 10, 15 seconds, you know, at best, in terms of the fire of a match. And that log is just... It's, it's too dang thick. It's not going to light. Okay. But, 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 but. He says there is a way that you can light that log with one match. So, I'm listening. <laughs> How can I do it? What's the trick? The trick is if you break down that log into a lot of tiny little pieces, with one match you can light that entire log. One moment, one moment, one moment of life. You break down life into moments, one moment. You know, so many times we don't do something. You know why we don't do it? Because we've never done it. So how can I do it if I've never done it? (laughs) But if I detach the present moment from the past, and it's just a moment, so what's stopping me from doing it? or at least making an attempt, right? You can liberate time by breaking it up into moments. You know, one of the... I'm not... I don't know much about art criticism or things like that. and But I, I did read... I don't know who wrote it, but I did one, read one, one, one bit of art criticism about Jackson Pollock one time that always stayed with me. I'm sure everyone knows Jackson Pollock. Um, and, you know, he would he would stand over these large canvases and he would open up cans of paint and he would spin around and dance around swirling paint. And, and he would do that with all different colors until it covered the entire canvas. And this art critic said that Jackson Pollock liberated the line. That's something. Like, think of every other piece of art you've ever seen. The line is just to outline an object. Right? But can you imagine the line itself becoming the source of art and the focus of art? (laughs) The line itself? The line was just there to define a boundary. Now the line is the star. Jackson Pollock liberated the line. So how about liberating the moment? How about liberating the moment so that all there is is right now? 
So Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, you know, you can say to yourself at any at any moment, you know what, I'm going to start over right now. <laughs> I'm going to start over right now. And you know what that does? It liberates the moment. All of a sudden, this like thick encasement of expectations. Ah, what's going to be? What's going to be? Falls away. And the past, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, falls away. And then it's like, okay, what do I have to do? And then a person just has to begin. That's it. You just begin. I, I, I was trying to find something on my computer. And I thought I was opening up the right file. I, I opened up the wrong file. And, and in this file, I found a half-written thing that I had written that I could see was an act of desperation in terms of me trying to start a thought because it was so horribly written <laughs> and it made no sense, but it was the beginning of something. And then I forgot about it and abandoned it and it just ended up in some file that never should have been opened again. But somehow just, I opened up this file, right? And I spent a chunk of Friday polishing that thought and now that thought exists. I'm, 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 I'm so happy, you know? Why? Because I just began, I began it, you know? You know, there's a there's an amazing thing that uh, every once in a while, if you if you follow Rabbi Shlomo Katz or or Yehuda Solomon or Ben Sion Solomon or whatever it is, all of a sudden um, another song that Reb Shlomo sang forty years ago all of a sudden enters into the world again. They find a tape where he was at some event and he sang a song maybe just once in his life, and it was never heard from again. And then all of a sudden, it's like, they're like, you know, Kihila's communities around the world singing this song. How is that possible? And as someone who's sung the songs that never should have been sung again, many times, with tears in my eyes, right? There's such beautiful, intense melodies, heavenly melodies. You know Why? Because there's a secret. And that is, if you do something real, it lasts forever. Even if you just begin something and never finish it. If it's real, it lasts forever. You know, there's a a famous teaching um, about the the word emet. Emet in, in, in Hebrew means truth. So if you do something real, that means it's, it contains truth in it, okay? And the amazing thing about the... There are many amazing things about the word emet. Um, but one of them is that it it's spelled aleph, mem, tuf. Aleph is the first letter of the aleph base, mem is the middle letter, and tuf is the last letter. In other words, if something is true, it's true forever, beginning, middle, and end. So if you, if you can access that, that line of truth, that, that spectrum of truth, which, that wavelength which exists into the world, if through your total sincerity 
and, and, and striving to connect can do any action. It's forever. And, and either you'll be graced to pick up on it later in life, like, like the small example that I just gave in terms of finishing off that paragraph, that little chapter, or that someone will pick up on your work, right? Like Reb Shlomo's song will be found and it will be, it, people will continue to sing it. Or your act, even if it's just a beginning, will inspire others who will do more truthful things because you, you triggered that. Or in its most esoteric, abs- abstract way, you just put an energy of truth into the world. And other people will receive that energy of truth and they will be inspired without even knowing that it ever came from you to do something real themselves. And so the light of truth is forever, whatever form it takes. And that's one of the incredible things about Torah. Um which is, you see, we can affect the world in so many different ways. And you see it in terms of the structure of a human being. So, so there are five levels to the soul. Now, we say in terms of the Jewish understanding, Kabbalistically speaking, we say three of the aspects of your soul are contained within your body and two are outside your body. They surround your body. And the highest, the fifth, the highest, goes all the way up to the highest heavens, right? To the Kisea Kavit, to the throne of glory. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. Um, it was Reb Shlomo's uh, practice and, and I do this, my family does this, um, and I don't know how well known it is, so I'm sharing it with you in case you want to do it as well. That, that by Havdalah, you know, you look at the light from the Havdalah candles on your, on your fingernails, right? And what Rib Shlomo would do is he would bring that light to himself, almost like when women... Um, like the Shabbos candles, they also bring the light. So, so by the Havdalah candle, he would bring that light to himself five times. And, and that parallels the five levels of the soul. Right? By the way, interestingly, this fifth level, which goes all the way up, is called the Yechida. Yechida has the word Yachid, in it, which means one or unified. When we talk about all of us sharing the same soul, that we're one soul, that's the level in which all of us are united in terms of the same soul, that fifth highest level. And I'll tell you something interesting also about it while we're on the subject, which is there's only one day of the entire year, only one day, that has five Shmona Esres attached to it. 
That's, remember, Shemona Esrei is the, the central prayer of our service, okay? So, that day is Yom Kippur. It's the only day of the entire year, because you have Mariv, Shachris, that's two, Musaf is three, Mincha is four, and then you have Ne'ila, which is five. And you say the Shemona Esrei for all five which is to say that Yom Kippur doesn't just cleanse what a a normal holy day would, but it has this extra attribute that you get all the way up to your Yechida, all the way to this highest aspect of your soul. And that's, that's, that's an amazing thing. Now, now with that in mind, if your soul goes all the way up to the throne of glory, Let's just take a moment to appreciate how little of you your body covers. <laughs> I'll say that again. If your soul, all of our souls, go all the way up to the th- throne of glory, let's just take a moment to appreciate how little of you is covered by your body. <laughs> And, and the, the rabbis put it this way, that your body is the shoe of your soul. Your body is the shoe of your soul, meaning that just like your shoe covers a small percentage of your body, your body covers a small percentage of your soul. So if you want to like blow your mind, when you deal with other people, imagine that they don't end at the top of their heads. <laughs> that you are a giant interacting with giants. <laughs> when you look in the mirror, have an appreciation for your utter, you know, that you like span dimensions, literally, right? You can have a whole different appreciation of yourself and others. So, so there's a reason why I'm telling you all this, because I want to get back to this idea of putting truth into the world. You see, each person straddles dimensions, right? Because your actions are reverberating, not just in this realm, but in the the higher dimensions that your soul is, is going through and is always in, because wherever you walk, I mean, did you ever do this as a kid? You know, you wanted to work on your posture, so you balanced a book on the top of your head or two books or three books or something like that. So how many books could you balance on the top of your head? Well, you are balancing dimensions on the top of your head because your soul is going all the way up, right? So, but what that means is, now listen carefully to this because this is a major idea. That means that your actions are affecting the universe. 
That means if you're alone in your house, alone in your room, and you put some money in the tzedakah box, in the charity box, right? Or you learn a little Torah, or you say a prayer, or you do something truthful, whatever that means. It's it's for all the dimensions. Do you understand? So, we have to take ourselves more seriously, but not too seriously, right? Because <laughs> that's, that's another problem. I, I like to quote Oscar Wilde. I heard this quote. I, I love it so much which is, life is too important to be taken seriously. (laughs) You know what that means? That means that if you want to really, truly access the the importance and the seriousness of life, if you're too serious, you're not going to do it. (laughs) You think, wait, life is serious. I have to be serious in order to access the seriousness of life. But no, (laughs) At a certain point, if you're too serious, you just bring yourself and everyone around you down. <laughs> and then you can't access the seriousness of life because everyone's just walking around too depressed. <laughs> and they're just bummed out. <laughs> so it's got to be with joy. We have to serve God with joy. And then that joy allows us to access the importance and the seriousness of life. It's kind of counterintuitive, but you do it with joy, and it's holy joy, right? It's holy joy. It's it's that that's what opens the heart and opens up the mind and opens up people to each other, right? No one wants to be around a depressed person, you know. It's just like they the people run from a depressed person, but if you're in a place of joy, they run to you, right? Reb Shlomo quoted Rebbe Nachman. He says, people are sad because nothing's going right in their life, but nothing's going right in their life because they're sad. Right? Can you imagine? They actually have a video of Reb Shlomo saying this teaching in Moscow. He's standing in, in Moscow saying this to, to Russians. I'll say it again. It's, it's such an such amazing teaching. People are sad because nothing's going right in their life, but nothing's going right in their life because they're sad, right? Because if you want to really break through those barriers, only joy does it, really. That's the secret ingredient. That's the secret ingredient, is joy. Um, so, so and, and how do you get to a place of joy? You say, well... But nothing is going right in my life. How can I be in a place of joy when nothing's going right in my life? You know, like it's like that that great Steve Martin joke. He says, "Okay, I'm going to teach you how to be a millionaire and never pay taxes." He says it's really easy. Step number one: make a million dollars. Step number two. <laughs> so you say, "Wait a second, how can I?" How can I be joyous if genuinely nothing is going right in my life? So it's a great question. So the answer is gratitude. Because something is going right in your life. Right? Your eyes are open. So, you know, I I remember the first time I heard someone said, every day I wake up above ground is a good day. (laughs) 
I thought that was so wonderfully phrased, you know? It's it's every day, every day, just there's, we can find things to thank God for. My eyes are open. God, I've got these eyelashes, and you know what? Dust does not go onto my eyeballs because of these amazing eyelashes. Thank you for my eyelashes. If you think about it, there, you will you will never stop finding things to thank God for. And then something magical happens. And I've done this. I've done this. It works. Believe me. If you start thanking God for these little things, everything around you, at a certain point, you begin to smile. <laughs> it works. I'm telling you. It just works. So, so, so the key to joy is gratitude. And, and you can have gratitude. Gratitude is always available. It really is. It really, really is. Um, okay. So, so who didn't have gratitude? Billum! Billum did not have gratitude. <laughs> Let's talk about Billum a little bit. Because there is, there is, there are a lot of amazing things about Billum. And I want to appreciate Billum for a moment. But I'm not going to do that until I first tell you how horrible he was. <laughs> Let's begin with how utterly detestable a personality he was. And then we can find something to appreciate about what he could have been. Not of what he was, unfortunately, but what he could have been. Um, Kabbalistically, we say, and... It's it's really like it's a, it's a it's frightening actually what I'm about to tell you it's frightening that he comes from what is his line his energy line his soul line you know his line of Gilgulim you know however you want to express it was this snake in the Garden of Eden and then Lovin remember Lovin um, in English we say Laban but I don't think anyone says that. Lovin, he's the, he's the one who, he was the father, amazingly enough, of Leah and Rachel, okay? Um, but Lovin basically tried to kill the Jewish people when they were just one family with, with Yaakov, right? Like he, he never wanted Yaakov to escape his, his territory. Um, when, when I was growing up, uh, we spent our, our, our summers in, in Massachusetts in this little place called Paden Aram. Uh, and and I, I was amazed when I got older and was looking in the Torah that that was the name of the village that Lovin lived in. And I guess the, the pilgrims were religious and they somehow they, they named this little place where I used to spend my summers growing up, uh, Paden Aram, right? Uh, but anyway... Lovin tried to make it that Yaakov never, ever, ever escaped there. Um, so it's the snake, then it's Lovin, and then it's Bilam. So that's that's a that's a pretty terrifying uh, spiritual ancestry. Now, now I want to appreciate what Bilam could have been. 
And we'll get maybe an, an additional appreciation, I hope, for who Moshe Rabbeinu was. Um, the Talmud says that in the end of days, the non-Jewish world is going to have a complaint to God. And they're going to say, God, if you had given us a Moses, we would have also been like Israel. And God is going to say back, I gave you Bilaam. Now, that's that you can cry your eyes out. You can cry your eyes out that there was a spiritual opportunity that was given the world, and it was entrusted into the hands of this man named Bilaam. And that Bilaam just absolutely blew it. He absolutely blew it. That he could have been this tremendous light to the entire world. And so the Talmud itself is comparing Bilaam to, to Moses, which is extraordinary. But do you know what that means? That means two things, okay? At least. One of the things it means is that Moses could have been like Bilaam. Do you understand? You see, imagine, have you ever seen someone do a high dive, like in the Olympics? You know, they go to this diving board, which is, you know, you could get, like you could panic walking up the the ladder to the diving board. And then you're standing on the diving board, so you're like standing like there's no walls on either side of you. It's terrifying. And then, you know, they, they do all sorts of fancy dives. But I'm talking about a, a particular dive, which they make look easy. That's, that's kind of the point I'm making right now. And it's the dive where they just dive straight into the water. <laughs> and they're perfectly straight. And it's... Now, you can watch that and you go, yeah, he just, you know, he just like leaned over and, you know. No. No, no, no. Perfectly straight the entire journey down. Perfectly straight. A million opportunities to veer to the left, to veer to the right. That was Moses. And when you look at the perfection of what he did, you go, well, of course he did it. You know, he was like a holy robot, right? Of course, yeah, he was programmed to be Moshe, and so Moshe was Moshe. Like, Let me ask you this. How many plagues do you think you could have pulled off? <laughs> Just think about it for a moment. I would say the average for humanity may be one and a half. <laughs> he got ten. He got ten. He was the vehicle for ten. All right, let's say you did all, all ten. How much of the sea do you think you could have split? <laughs> the first ten yards. <laughs> Half wouldn't have done people much good. I split half this. Hey, half the sea. That's that's pretty good. The whole sea. 
You know, when he was at the top of Mount Sinai, heaven came down to earth and Moshe enters into heaven. What does that mean? You think he just took one step? There was something transdimensional going on, stepping into another dimension and living and then walking out. So he had to overcome amazing things. Now, I just want to give you a a better appreciation, okay? Because we're almost there, but... But, but I need to give you one more point. The, the members of the Sanhedrin were supposed to, this was when Moshe was going to Paro the first time. And it was just Moshe and Aaron who went in to see Paro. So you may have thought that that was the plan And it was just those were the two who were representing the Jewish people or those were the only two people who were welcomed in or however you want to understand it. You don't really ask a lot of questions. You kind of just think, okay, Moshe and Aram went in and and they did what they did. The whole Sanhedrin was supposed to go with them. Rashi brings us, okay? This is a Rashi. I'm not making up anything up here. And you know what? Do you know why they didn't go in? Because they were terrified. They were absolutely scared out of their gourds of walking into Pharaoh's palace, which was this like intense cesspool of like Gehenna and witchcraft and all sorts of like. Remember, remember, I've shared this with you in the past. I saw a picture not so long ago. It's it's something called the the Colossus of some name. I don't know. It's one of these Egyptian uh, uh, antiquities, okay? And I saw a black and white picture on my computer screen, and it was there was a human being standing standing on the bottom of it, and then this thing went up like at least ten 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 times the size of a human being, at least ten times. And it was this idol that was built, okay? Now, why am I telling you this? Because during, I believe it was called Operation Solomon, during the 1970s, I believe it was, maybe it was the 80s, when the Israeli government made this secret mission to Ethiopia and rescued the, uh, a portion of the Ethiopian Jews, and, and they brought them to Israel. When they brought these Ethiopians, this is the you know, a few decades ago, you know, 30, 40 years ago, whatever it is, 40 years ago, when they brought them to the tarmac to fly them to Israel, you know how sometimes when you board an airplane, you have to climb up a ladder? There's like a metal ladder that you climb up? Listen carefully. This is 1970s, 1980s. They had never seen stairs before. Do you Do you understand? They had never seen stairs before. Imagine what the topography of the ancient world was. It was flat. You have things that were 10, 20 times the size of a human being going up in the air. 
Do you know how terrifying the architecture of the idol worship of Egypt was to the average person with, with and humans with like crocodile heads and all sorts of outlandish, terrifying things? You know, it makes me think of someone else. This might surprise you, but, and I'm saying this in praise of Martin Luther King. Why Martin Luther King of all people? Because when he would organize these marches, he would say, we're going to do a march in a week or two weeks or whatever it is. Do you know how many death threats he got? from people who weren't joking, and in fact, he was murdered later on, okay? And they wanted to murder him for years and years. And then they finally did, horribly. But do you know what it is? Because I don't. To absolutely take your life in your own hands, just walking out your front door, but really taking your life in your hands. Every time Moshe went in to see Parah, he was taking his life in his hands. So much so that the other elders of Israel were like, we're very happy to walk you this far. Best of luck. Go get him. <laughs> So, so Moshe did this straight dive, which is incredible. Bilaam, Bilaam had a chance to be Moshe or like Moshe, right? Only Moshe was Moshe, but Bilaam could have been for the non-Jewish world Moshe. But now listen to this, with that in mind, with that appreciation of Moshe in mind. Listen to this. But Bilaam, in order to be who he could have been, had to overcome his spiritual lineage. So do you see what Bilaam had to overcome? He had to overcome the snake in the Garden of Eden and Lovin? Wow. Who's going to pass that test? Well, I'll tell you one person who isn't, Bilaam. <laughs> but he could have. And just the very fact that he could have means that he must have been so awesomely great. Because who even has a, a chance of overcoming being loving and the snake in the Garden of Eden? The fact that he even had a chance to do that means he must have been extraordinary. And that's what I mean. Let's appreciate Bilaam for a moment. Again, he absolutely didn't become that person. Absolutely, 100% did failed miserably. But look at what, just to appreciate that he had the potential is amazing. Okay. Now, there's many discussions that we can have in terms of describing him, but I just want to make one point, okay? 
which is this Rashi that that is amazing. And you really have to look at the Rashis with, um, there's so much dialogue in the story of Bilaam. Um, by the way, just one point, if you don't know this, there's like a great Torah factoid, which is that that Parsha's Bilaam is, or Balak, no, yeah, Parsha's Balak is unlike any other portion in the entire Torah for the reason that it's recording events that no Jew was present at. <laughs> Moshe wasn't there to record it. None of the Jews were there to record it. And yet we have the exact dialogue and the exact events that were taking place, which is, you know, another sign of the divinity of the Torah, basically. Because how do we have this chapter at all? Because God told Moshe. That, that, that's the reason, right? So... So there's a lot of dialogue back and forth. And if you read it on a simple level, a lot of times Bilaam sounds like he's being very, very religious. He's saying things like, I can't do anything unless God tells me to do, you know, all these things. But if you look at the Rashi, and unfortunately we don't have time to go through these Rashis, but I really recommend that you look at them because they're really fun. Because you, you see Rashi fills in all the missing pieces of, of what Bilaam is saying, and you realize, wow, you can't believe how something can look like one thing on the surface and be a, a completely different thing, right? Um, but I do want to read one Rashi, because I, I think that this is um, relevant to us, and, and, and I, I just want to start to wrap it up right now. So, so Balak... The king of Moab wants Bilaam to curse the Jews. And he sends a, you know, an, an assembly of dignitaries to, to Bilaam to, to get him to take the job. And Bilaam says, you know, uh, wait here and, you know, God will tell me whether I should go with you or not. So uh, God would come to Bilaam in, in dreams, in, in, in night visions, which was... You know, it, it was prophecy, but it's not considered the highest prophecy. But nonetheless, it's a it's a degree of prophecy. And so, during this prophetic encounter, God asks Bilam, "Who are these people? Who are who are these men with you?" Now, listen to what Rashi says. God gave Bilam an opportunity to make a mistake. As a result of this question. Bilaam said, there are times when not everything is revealed before God, right? Because God is asking this question, who are these people? Now, of course, God knows who these people are, for goodness sakes. But Bilaam is thinking, his mind is not equal upon him. (laughs) I.e., he is not always equally aware of things, God. I too will see a time in which I will be able to curse Israel and God will not understand that this is what I'm doing. Do you, can I put it in modern terms? Bilaam thought God was senile. <laughs> you know, like, today was a good day for God. He was, oh, he remembered everything today. <laughs> today, not so much, you know, he... He didn't really recognize me today. You know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to go in, I'm going to bring him a bottle of wine, we're going to have a nice dinner, and I'm going to get him to sign the house over to me. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. That was Bilaam. The awesome Bilaam, that was Bilaam. He thought, sometimes God knows, sometimes God doesn't know. How could that be? How could that be? How could that be? That he thought so little of God. And so, I just want to make this point, and we'll close this point. Because Bilaam was the highest, he really was. Or could have been, anyway. But he was talking to God, that's for sure. The Torah itself says he was absolutely talking to God, multiple times. And God was talking to him, multiple times. So, here's what it says to me, and, you know, we could talk about Bilaam for hours and hours and hours and hours. But let me just kind of try to strip it down and get to a core point. And that's the following. At every level, and remember, Bilaam is, he, he straddles from the lowest to the highest in his own way. At every level, in every aspect of society, and I'll include myself and perhaps all of us too, you know, everybody thinks they can outsmart God. And guess what? We can't. We can't outsmart God. God is God, period. That's the simplicity of it. And we get to be alive. And that's the simplicity of it. And, and, and ideally, with God's help, we can strive toward that divine simplicity where we don't have to know everything. All we need to know is that there's a God who runs everything and we, we get to be alive. And I think, you know, like, like Rabbi Nachman said, that, that we have to strive for simplicity. But, you know, the Havdil, as Steve Jobs said, simple is hard. Simple is really hard. Because we're constantly trying to unknot things. We're constantly trying to unknot things instead of just sort of like being in awe at just the awesomeness of the oneness of God. So Hashem should bless us that we should be ever new, that we should take advantage of every single moment and live every single moment, not with a new light, but with a light of newness, right? That the light should go out, that we should understand that every time we do something true, something real, that we're spending out, we're sending out light everywhere. And it's forever. And that we should basically absolutely be able to fulfill all of the dreams that God has for us. And all we have to do is take that huge log and break it down into tiny pieces, get rid of the future, get rid of the past, just have the moment. And ideally, the moment should be informed by the past and informed by the future, but, but stripped of all the burdens of it at the same time. 
right? And, and to be able to begin. And if we can begin, we don't necessarily have to end. All we have to do is make that effort. And by putting that effort in, that light of truth will be a foundation that will be the building blocks of seeing the third base of Migdash and the perfection of the world. What follows now are some questions and answers. So when, when God asks Bilaam, who are these people? Um, it says, the, the footnote here in the book, but it, it seems very, you know, intuitive, that God was opening up a conversation with, with Bilaam. Um, so, so it's parallel to when, when Adam and Eve hide behind the bushes they hear the footsteps of God and they hide behind the bushes and 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 God says, Where are you? Right? Ayeka, right? Where the word echa, it's the same word as echa. Um, where are you? And and it's not because God didn't see them hiding behind the bushes, obviously. It was God's way of opening up a conversation with them. And and so so I, I, I don't feel I, I don't feel as though it was a stumbling block. I feel as though that 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 God was giving him the opportunity to say, "Well, look, there are these people, and they want to do this. And what do you think, God?" And 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 just having that having that dialogue, you know. It it says to me, just you know, now that I'm thinking about it, it says to me that God wants to talk with us, you know, because if you think about it, it's a very informal question. Who are these people with you? Oh, God, you know something? Yeah, you know, I'm wondering that too. Why Why did you send them to me? You know, since everything comes from you, what What? what do you want from me? How can we do this together? You know, this is, a, because Because remember, this is, this this whole world, this whole project called reality is this amazing partnership between us and God. God created us to be partners with him in terms of finishing off the world. So, so every task, every human interaction, every, everything that we have to do is part of this project of finishing off creation. So, so if you want to know what's going on, it makes sense to ask your partner, God, what, what did you have in mind with this thing? And, 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 and then there could have been this collaboration where the most could have been made from this, not just in terms of sending light to Balak, or, or, but maybe in terms of Bilaam himself becoming the prophet who he could have been, right? Because then God would have told him more things that would have been very useful probably to Bilaam himself in terms of his own growth. So, so that's why it's really important to talk with God. And and as you can see from the informality of the way God has approached, like, Adam, where are you? Oh, here I am, God, but since you obviously know where I am, you want to know where am I emotionally? Well, great question. I just messed up big time. You told me don't eat from that tree. What did I do? I ate from the tree. Why did I do that? And he would have been steps away from tshuva and rectifying eating from the tree of knowledge in the moment. But there's a, a magic or a holiness that comes from conversation with God that, that, that 
doesn't come from prayer because prayer is a lot of times, unless prayer reaches this very um, spontaneous, ecstatic level of that where it's like conversation, which it which it absolutely can reach, but but actual dialoguing with God can get a person to the most phenomenal places. So 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 yeah. So I guess in 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 my reading of it, even though Rashi does say, um, as you point out, that that he gave Bilam an opportunity to make a mistake, meaning to say he created this illusion that perhaps he didn't know who these people were. So, so, so I hear that. But at the same time, we have to know who God is in terms of just as a premise that God is someone who's running the world and knows absolutely everything. And if that's not in our mind, you know, as, as, as a premise, then we're going to just make loads and loads of mistakes, you know? So, so there's a, a very important teaching from Reb Shlomo that, that, that I love because this is sort of like we're moving into this, this period um, where historically there, there have been a lot of tragedies and things like that and sort of, you know, it's, it, it is a sad period. At the same time, though, we know that, that as it says, Hashem to, to serve God with joy, and that joy is that is that window through which we're our most productive and our most successful. So how do you kind of combine the two? So there's a, a great teaching. It's a classic teaching. Um, I'm sure you've heard it. But it says in the Talmud that when um, when when Av, the month of Av comes in, which is you know around the corner, that we. Uh, decrease in joy. And that when the month of Adar comes in, Adar, of course, is the month of with Purim, that when Adar comes in, we increase in joy. So so someone pointed out, Arav pointed out, I don't know who it was, very brilliantly, that it says you either increase in joy or decrease in joy, but the standard is always joy. In other words, it could have said when the month of Av comes in, the Talmud knew what it was writing. It, it could have written when the month of Av comes in, you increase in sadness. But it didn't say increase in sadness. It said decrease in joy. And by Adar, increase in joy. In other words, it's always got to be about joy. <laughs> You're just increasing or decreasing the joy. Now, with that in mind... Let me tell you something more practical. That's pretty practical too, but this is even more practical. So Reb Shlomo says that a person can cry with the outside of their heart, but they have to be besimcha with joy in the inside of their heart. And that's how you balance the two things at the same time. You can cry but you you can only you can cry with the outside of your heart with the inside of your heart it has to be in a place of happiness so so that's that's a very practical way of getting through life and being able to balance these different things because there's room for tears but the tears can't be such that they completely take you over Great therapy. We just want to reinforce.
enforced with it. Same thing with Bilam and Hashem's question to him. You may have spoken this at the beginning of the Shewer. Balak, Moab was actually protected from Israel, but Balak didn't know it. So all of his machinations got him into this sticky, toxic, you know, complicated exchange with Bilam. And it, it, it ended very badly for both of them. So I'm sure that that's been part of your, you know, studies and reflections. I just, it's just so like, there's such a lesson in there for us, you know, and I think it reinforces a lot of what you're sharing from just a different vantage point is like, we, we can't just sit back and be lazy, but, but if we can just get our actions aligned, you know, with, with the higher will, we also get to sidestep a whole lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, here, hang on one quick second. Yes. No. Okay. What's up? Oh, you are free? I'm giving the class right now. Oh, sorry. sorry. David, you're muted. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, Ira, thank you for pointing that out because we, we, we weren't allowed to attack Moab, as you point out. And so this whole thing, he was safe, actually. And then he brought this whole disaster upon himself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very ironic. Very ironic. Yeah. Um, does anyone else have a, a question or a thought they want to share? Harvey, I see your hand. Welcome, welcome back, Harvey. Thank you. <clears throat> There's a, a story, and I think it's a Hasidic story, about a funeral, and uh, the rabbi is dancing around the coffin and singing songs of praise and uplifting the soul of the deceased. But it's a small coffin, and it's a child. And if, as you look closer, you see that the tears are pouring down his face while he's lifting these prayers. And it's his own son in this coffin. And so I like your, your discussion about the joy and Everything has elements of joy, even such a tragic moment of losing a child. Yeah, you know, you remind me, there's a, another story that could be the partner story to this story, where the, the Sanzer Rebbe, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, was walking to his son's funeral. Uh, and he, he was in this place of joy. And someone asked him, how, how can you be in a place of joy like this? You know, like given the circumstances. And listen to his answer. He said, he says, I feel like someone, I just got a whack, like a very powerful hit on my back. And I felt it. And then I turned around to see who did it, and I saw it was my best friend in the whole world. Right? The one who loves me the most. In other words, so that balance, that balance of, of feeling the pain, and yet knowing that somehow, some way, it's coming from this place of love, you know? It takes a, a very great person to be able to balance these two things, especially when it gets as personal as that. But, but there, there, the Sansa Rebbe was one of those people, and it, it sounds like that could have been what you described could have been part two of this story. You know, yeah, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's that that that's what I was thinking. But that's yeah, that that's a story that I always remember. Um, does anyone else? I see uh, Sean. Sean, you're waving your hand. Hey, thanks for that. It was really great. Um, so, just a small observation. It seems like this story is to contrast with uh, Moshe, who also could speak directly to God. I don't know. Well, now, Bilaam, okay, wait a second. Bilaam didn't speak directly to God. Moshe did. That was that was the uniqueness of Moshe's prophecy. In fact, it says that uh, God came to Bilaam in these sort of night visions and these dreams. So it, it, it was prophecy. It absolutely was prophecy. But it was, a, it was a lower level of prophecy, and it was definitely distinct from Moshe's, because even the greatest of the Jewish prophets didn't have the same level that Moshe did. Only Moshe had that rung of prophecy. And and that's for all eternity. Even Mashiach will not have the same level of prophecy as Moshe had. Yeah. So, okay, so going back, um, it just seems like there's a contrast between the two because, uh, you know, you look at Bilaam, He's using his prophecy like a mercenary, like he's hoping to get a house full of gold and silver. You know, like it's such a contrast between the two, although it's not ever, I don't think it's ever said that way, but it's it's just why did everything spiral down and and turn out bad for Billah is is because the basis of everything was sort of a, a type of corruption, you know, it was like, uh, so where where else could it go, you know? And and the intent, the intent for what they were doing was to harm other people, like to curse the Israelites. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a real contrast with. So no wonder he could never become like Moshe because he he, he everything what he was doing was so antithesis of of what Moshe did. Yeah, and and I. I think you're 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 pointing out something uh I think very fundamental which is how how important um one's personality is or or to put it in the the the, the Torah language one's midos um and and remember midos it's translated into English as personality traits but it has a very striking other definition. Midos means measurements. So we tend to think of personality as a sort of like very vague, free-flowing kind of uh, word, right? What's your personality? Well, it changes. You know, it depends on the mood that I'm in, this, that, and the other thing. But what's so interesting is that this word for personality in Hebrew, midos, actually means measurements, which is the exact opposite of this free-flowing thing. It means, how angry do you get when you get angry? <laughs> it's got to be the, the proper amount of anger. If it's too much anger, you have bad meetups. <laughs> wow. Right? You know, so it's actually, it's not just whatever, you know, I'll tell you how angry I'm going to get. I'm going to get as angry as you made me. That's how angry I'm going to get. And that's going to be the perfect amount of anger. 
Because this is how angry you just made me. Not that you're not in Torah land, man. You just you you took the bus out of Torah land as soon as you started raising your voice. You just went bye bye. So there are there are measures, and a person has to understand that when they react, right, that 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 their reaction has to be appropriate. Now, here's the thing, and this is going to be a very big key. This is a tremendous key that I'm telling you right now. And I heard this from Rabbi Green the first time. Awesome, awesome, awesome gateway of understanding everything right now, which is a person cannot understand pshat, meaning a person cannot understand what the Torah is saying until they correct their midos. Because if you are a very angry person and then you read that that God did X, Y, or Z, you go, yeah, because God was really angry at them. In other words, you take your own personality and you project it onto the page and that's what you think the Torah is saying. But until a person refines themselves and understands that God is good and that the purpose of creation is for the good, and that it's true that suffering and frustration and all sorts of stuff exists, unfortunately. God should save us from it. But nonetheless, that that, that it's not a contradiction to the mission of this world and to the goodness of God. When a person understands all these things, then they're going to read the passages of the Torah. They're going to deal with other people very, very differently. In other words, the foundation for intellectual understanding sits atop your personality traits. And until a person corrects their personality traits, how they filter in information and knowledge will not be in accordance with the truth until their personality is in accordance with the truth, which is to love kindness and to do good for other people. So, Bilaam had a horrible personality. And that was the problem. He had this crown of prophecy sitting on top of a garbage dump. And Moshe was the absolute opposite. Moshe made this sterling, pure, holy thing out of his personality so that when he saw the burning bush, it was a crown sitting on top of like the most ethereal, refined spirit. And so he was able to actually take the word of God and to just change the world forever with it. Whereas Bilaam just made junk and more garbage out of it. There's a lesson for us here. Definitely distinct from Moshe's because even the greatest of the Jewish prophets didn't have the same level that Moshe did. Only Moshe had that rung of prophecy. And and that's for all eternity. Even Mashiach will not have the same level of prophecy as Moshe had. Yeah. So, okay, so going back, um, it just seems like there's a contrast... look at Bilaam, he's using his prophecy like a mercenary, like he's hoping to get a house full of 
gold and silver, you know, like it, it's such a contrast between the two, although it's not ever, I don't think it's ever said that way, but it's, it's just, why did everything spiral down and, and turn out bad for Billach is, is because the basis of everything was sort of a, a type of corruption, you know, it was like, uh, so where, where else could it go, you know, and, and the intent, the intent for what they were doing was to harm other people, like to curse the Israelites. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a real contrast with, so no wonder he could never become like Moshe because he, he, everything, what he was doing was so antithesis of, of what Moshe did. Yeah, and, and I, I think you're, you're, you're pointing out something, uh, I think, very fundamental, which is how, how important um, one's personality is, or, or to put it in the, 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 the Torah language, one's midos. Um, and, and remember, midos, it's translated into English as personality traits, but it has a very striking other definition. Midos means measurements. So we tend to think of personality as a sort of like very vague, free-flowing kind of uh, word, right? What's your personality? Well, it changes. You know, it depends on the mood that I'm in, this, that, and the other thing. But what's so interesting is that this word for personality in Hebrew, midos, actually means measurements, which is the exact opposite of this free-flowing thing. It means, how angry do you get when you get angry? <laughs> it's got to be the, the proper amount of anger. If it's too much anger, you have bad meetups. <laughs> wow. Right? You know, so it's actually, it's not just whatever, you know, I'll tell you how angry I'm going to get. I'm going to get as angry as you made me. That's how angry I'm going to get. And that's going to be the perfect amount of anger. Because this is how angry you just made me. Not that you're not in Torah land, man. You just, you, you took the bus out of Torah land as soon as you started raising your voice. You just went, bye bye. Oh, man. So, so there are, there are measures and a person has to understand that when they react, right? That, 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 that their reaction has to be appropriate. Now, here's the thing. And this is going to be a very big key. This is a tremendous key that I'm telling you right now. And I heard this from Rabbi Green the first time. Awesome, awesome, awesome gateway of understanding everything right now. Which is, a person cannot understand pshat, meaning, a person cannot understand what the Torah is saying until they correct their midas. Because if you are a very angry person, and then you read that that God did X, Y, or Z, you go, yeah, because God was really angry at them. In other words, you take your own personality, and you project it onto the page, and that's what you think the Torah is saying. But until a person refines themselves and understands that God is good and that the purpose of creation is for the good 
and that it's true that suffering and frustration and all sorts of stuff exists, unfortunately. God should save us from it. But nonetheless, that, that, that it's not a contradiction to the mission of this world and to the goodness of God. When a person understands all these things, then they're going to read the passages of the Torah. They're going to deal with other people very, very differently. In other words, the foundation for intellectual understanding sits atop your personality traits. And until a person corrects their personality traits, how they filter in information and knowledge will not be in accordance with the truth until their personality is in accordance with the truth, which is to love kindness and to do good for other people. So Bilaam had a horrible personality. And that was the problem. He had this crown of prophecy sitting on top of a garbage dump. And Moshe was the absolute opposite. Moshe made this sterling, pure, holy thing out of his personality so that when he saw the burning bush, it was a crown sitting on top of like the most ethereal, refined spirit. And so he was able to actually take the word of God and to just change the world forever with it. Whereas Bilaam just made junk and more garbage out of it. There's a lesson for us here, and that is that it's... Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>